0: My hope is in the Lord Lord, who gave himself for me.
1: Welcome to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. For well over a year now, our pastor has been discussing the messages that Jesus Christ himself preached. Last week, Pastor Jones began a study of Christ's final sermon as recorded in the New Testament. This is sometimes called Jesus' message to the seven churches of Asia, as found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This discourse speaks to a question we have asked several times on this broadcast. Has the Christian church changed from what Christ would want it to be? If you'd like to follow in your Bible, Pastor Jones will be examining Revelation chapter 2 and verses 8 through 11. In this section, Christ spoke to his church located in the city of Smyrna, a place where our Lord's followers were up against great hatred and persecution. What would Jesus say to his loyal but afflicted followers who were standing against slander and violence that seemed to be ready to swallow them? Further, how might Christ's words have meaning for you today? I pray that you'll listen and hear our Savior's voice speaking to you and that you will have ears to hear the lessons he taught the Suffering Church of Smyrna.
0: Well, it's good to be with you for another Beacon of Hope broadcast. And um, we're today we're on our second part of Christ's last message, a message to his seven churches, in uh, what was then called Asia, um, Roman Empire, Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, and we come to his message to a local church in the t- the city of Smyrna, and so uh, I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll just ask God to give us insight as we look into it. It's Revelation chapter two, verses eight through eleven, and Jesus speaking, he says, "And to the angel, or remember, it's the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write." These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And let's pray. Lord, give us understanding of your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to study it. And we pray that you'd make uh, this time profitable for all who would be listening. Uh, Lord, may you speak to my heart as well as we look into your word again. We thank you for it. Pray that you will guide us and that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever suffered for your faith? I mean, truly suffered. It's interesting. I don't know if, how many of you have seen. There's a, a satire uh, website called the Babylon Bee run by people, at least professing Christian people, and um, they often poke fun at all kinds of different individuals, and and sometimes uh, they poke fun at, at we who are Christians as well as Christians themselves. And so they have what they call on there the persecution update, and uh, they had a couple different articles that I thought were quite uh, interesting. They said, uh, quote, this is the title of the article, American Believer Suffers Brutal Persecution in Form of Occasional Ribbing from Coworkers. And uh, another uh, article they have under the persecution update, this woman's Facebook post about being a Christian just got a laughing emoji. And, uh, you know, that really does uh, point out a problem that many of us as Christians in the United States have, and that is we have been so blessed with freedom of religion that we look at persecution as something far smaller, uh, and we're silenced many times by things like a, a ribbing from our coworkers or a, a laughing emoji instead of being bold in our faith. And the church that we're looking at in Smyrna um, was, was the opposite of that. These people were genuinely suffering for their faith. You know, we tend to judge sometimes God's approval by whether he gives us a good or easy life. A lot of people, um, and well-meaning people, will think that every illness that they have should be healed and, and every difficulty that they go through, that if they have enough faith that God should answer and give them what they want. And the reality is uh, that, that that's just not uh, true biblically. Uh, you look at the Apostle Paul, and he's, he's saying we are like the off-scouring of the world. We're like a spectacle to all men. And um, Paul is, is clearly not teaching that the Christian life is supposed to be where uh, you get everything you want. No, that is not your. It's your best life now um, is just not where it's at. The reality of following Christ is that many times it costs us greatly, but God will reward us eternally for our loyalty, uh, loyalty, excuse me, and, and willingness to follow Him. Now, when you look at this address to the the, uh, church at Smyrna, let me just, again, uh, remind you of some common statements that Jesus makes to all seven churches. And this is church number two, by the way. Uh, First of all, he always talks to the angel or the messenger of the church. He addresses it. Then he also says, these things says he, and he gives a description of himself. And we'll look at what he tells the Smyrna uh, church. And then he says, I know your works. He also says to all seven, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which means that these messages to the churches are supposed to be taken uh, into our lives and understood and applied to our lives as individual Christians, if we have ears to hear. And then he always gives a challenge to those who would overcome. Now, the first thing he does then to this church when he says to the angel or the messenger of the church of Smyrna write, and then he begins to say something about himself. And what does he say to this church about himself? These things says, the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Now, when he mentions that he is the first and the last, what is the significance of that? Well, you really need to go back to the Old Testament to see it. And so I'm going to go to um, Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 4. I'm also going to look at Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, two verses out of the prophet Isaiah's writings, which, uh, again, should be well known to people who were, uh, uh, understood their Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 41, and listen if you would to verse 4 it says this Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? Uh, God talking about the fact that He knows the end from the beginning. Now, no, the answer is this I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. So God is claiming this title of the first and the last. Now I want you to also listen to Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. So, the Lord is clearly saying, this is my title, and there is no other God but me. So, when Jesus uses this title for himself, he is saying that he is, in fact, God. Thus says the first and the last. Now, this is extremely important. I know there are many um, who, uh, matter of fact, you really can define a cult by what they do with Jesus Christ. Do the people that you're following, do they say that Jesus is in fact very God, part of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or do they say that Jesus is some lesser being created by God, um, a God, but not the God? Um, Those statements are false and they are doctrinal heresy. Uh, Just to give you another idea about this, uh, when you think about uh, the fact of how Christians are to be baptized, how did Jesus tell us to do that in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20? He said, "Baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." Now. Uh, For instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses will will claim that that there is no Trinity, that there's just God the Father, there is a lesser God in Christ who's created by God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, in, in their view, is an impersonal force like a wind. Now, that would make absolutely no sense to baptize then people by that singular name, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? It, because uh, God is, again, he says, besides me, there is no God. To put the Son and the Holy Spirit on the same plane as God the Father is to make them equal. And that's exactly uh, what uh, elsewhere in the scriptures teach. When, when the, uh, there was prophecies of Jesus' birth, listen to what Isaiah the prophet wrote about Jesus 700 years before he was born. This is Isaiah chapter 7. I'm reading verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And when Matthew quotes this in Matthew chapter 1 of his gospel, he he says his name is to be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted, which he interprets now for us, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, if we'd missed it from Isaiah chapter 7 in our reading through that book, you come to chapter 9 and there's another prophecy of the coming Christ. And it says this, For unto us a child is born. Now that's clearly, when you look at this whole statement, it's going to be Jesus, the child, Christ, being born as a human. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace now you can't call him mighty god and not understand that jesus is in fact god so when christ is speaking to the church of smyrna the first thing he's reminding them of is that he is the first and the last which is saying he is very god That would be very important to them because many of these people are under severe persecution and some of them are going to have to lay down their lives for Jesus Christ. And they need to know and be assured of the fact that Jesus Christ is in fact God. He says something else about himself. I'm back in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. He says, these things says, the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, the fact that he is dead and came to life means he has conquered death. And again, why would that be so important? Because these people, some of them, are going to lay down their lives for Christ, and they need to know again that because Christ conquered death, we're going to conquer death as well. That laying down their lives for Christ was not going to be the end. It was just going to be the beginning. That giving their lives up for the Lord on this earth was going to result in their eternal um, blessing by the Lord. And so Jesus is pointing out two things about himself to these persecuted people. And the first one is that he is God. I'm the first and the last. And the second one, I conquered death. And then by implication, these people will conquer death as well. Now then he describes himself to the church. And it's um, rather interesting in verse 9... I'm sorry, he describes the church itself. Uh, Christ has already described himself. So he's describing the church now. He says, I know your works. And again, that's a statement that he made to all the churches. Now Now he begins to tell them what it's like, first of all, inside the church. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Christ is pointing out that, that, that he understands what's going on in the church and he understands what they're going through. Now, the word tribulation, where he says, your works, he says, you're in tribulation. That word actually means pressure or pressing something together. He says, I know that you're under pressure. Um, he says, I know your poverty. Now, that word for poverty strictly means the life of a beggar or extreme poverty or complete destitution. So Jesus is saying, I know what you're going through. You're going through great pressure. You are being impoverished because of your loyalty to me. These people had had been uh, faithful to the Lord, and so their uh, their works were great, and they were serving the Lord um, uh, faithfully and trying to stand up for his name. But because of that, they were under great pressure. And because of that, many of these people were impoverished. Now, it's kind of interesting. Uh, John MacArthur points out the following about this uh, city of Smyrna. Uh, he says that Smyrna means myrrh, and that's what, if you think about it, Smyrna. And the, um, the substance then, myrrh, was, was used for perfume and often for anointing a dead body. Uh, called the Crown of Asia, that was the, the, what they said about Smyrna, the city. This ancient city was the most beautiful in Asia Minor and a center of science and medicine. Always on the winner's side in the Roman wars, which meant basically, by the way, you sided with Rome, Smyrna's intense loyalty to Rome resulted in a strong emperor worship cult. Now, see, that was something that was going on in the Roman Empire once uh, uh, they moved from a republic into the empire phase, and that is they eventually uh, developed this idea that the emperor was God. Now, we saw the same thing even in the days of World War II, where the Empire of Japan was, was worshiping uh, her emperor as if, as if he was a god. And, and so this is what was going on in Rome. So MacArthur goes on. Fifty years after John's death, Polycarp, the pastor of the church in Smyrna, was burned alive at age 86 for refusing to worship Caesar. A large Jewish community in the city also proved hostile to the early church. You know, this reminds me of some of our Baptist forefathers. Uh, Not that, again, it's not that Baptists have an inside with God, but I will tell you that that our history is a little bit different than a lot of people understand. Um, uh, We understand about Catholicism and the break that Martin Luther made and John Calvin and others um, in what was formed now uh, Protestantism or uh, protesting against some of the abuses that were going on in the Catholic Church in that day. What some don't realize, many don't realize, is that there was a third group um, often referred to as Anabaptists, which meant they were re-baptizers, uh, people who believed that baptism should take place after conversion, not as an infant. Both Protestants and Catholics would would, would routinely baptize their babies in, at infancy. Uh, the Catholics, in order to try to wash away uh, original sin, um, the Protestants uh, were not so uh, much on that particularly as they were trying to um, like dedicate the child into the church, uh, giving them uh, some kind of a, of a uh, kind of leg up on, on um, salvation. But there were those, um, and this is where our Baptist heritage comes out. Also, by the way, coming out of this same Anabaptist heritage are the Mennonites uh, and the Amish who split with the Mennonites uh, years later. But um, the Anabaptists did, agreed with neither. They, they felt that um, that you should not baptize children until they themselves had made their own choice to follow Jesus Christ, that baptism is not a way of salvation. It's, you don't get saved by baptism. That baptism is actually an expression of salvation. It's, it's an open um, testimony of one's salvation, which I think is completely consistent with what the Scripture teaches. And so, because of that, um, both Protestants and Catholics uh, persecuted uh, the the uh, Anabaptists, and and there were some wacky groups within that Anabaptist group, by the way, as well. Um, others that got into communal living and and, and foolishness, but the Mennonites um, and then the Amish, who split off from them, and the the Baptists, all were uh, had, they had another distinct feature, and that is that. Um, the, the the Catholics and the Protestants both believed that when they took power in a government, that when their government became Catholic or Protestant, that they would then have the right to um, uh, persecute or at least greatly hinder the opposition. So when Catholic uh, leadership came in, uh, for instance in England, um, uh, they would often push out uh, Protestant leadership, and and sometimes even put them to death. Uh, the reign of Bloody Mary is very famous in in England as a, a monarch who came to the throne of England and and put several many Christians to death uh, in her short time of uh, of rulership. On the other hand, when Protestants came into power, uh, such as um, uh, well, Henry VIII's son Edward VI was uh, was in power for a while, and uh, and others Cromwell, Cromwell would be a great example of this. Um, they would then persecute the Catholics and drive them out of power, and in many cases um, make them go underground. the The Baptists or the Anabaptists of that day, the Rebaptizers, they believed that both were wrong, that in fact that the state should not be used as an arm to force anyone's religion on them. They were the, really the, the ones that believed in the separation of church and state and the fact that not that you couldn't pray and as, as it's being stretched out of proportion today, but as our founding fathers came to understand, and that is that you should not force people to believe or not believe, that you can't do that, that a person must make up their own mind Uh, As a free moral agent, God gives us the right to be wrong if necessary. And so you try to persuade people, but you do not try to force people to believe as you do. And um, that, because the Anabaptists uh, believed in the separation of church and state and were not baptizing their babies, they were persecuted by both Protestants and Catholics. And that really reminds me of what's going on here in the church Uh, Smyrna. They're not only going through persecution from the pagan community that is is demanding that they offer sacrifices to Rome, but they're going through persecution by the Jewish community uh, that was up against them. Um, And so they were really under under the, the, the fire of both groups. Now, what's interesting is if you're living in Smyrna at this time, and you're seeing these people, and yes, they they seem to love each other, but they are under extreme pressure, and they are impoverished because they're hated uh, by almost everybody else who doesn't agree with them in the city, it would be hard for you or I as as an outsider to say, yeah, I want to join that group of of believers, and and I want to follow what they're following. And the reality is that... Uh, so, sometimes as as Christians, even today, we want to look impressive. We want to look respectable. I remember a number of, of months ago, we had a, a group of uh, fellows that were riding motorcycles and came outside of our parking lot during one of our work days on a Saturday. And it looked like they were looking around, um, like they may, may want to take some pictures. Our our uh, sanctuary that we use uh, um, for our evening service and Wednesday nights. It, it's quite old. It's it's built in 1854. And so I thought, well, this might be a good opportunity to meet these fellows and see um, if I can be a blessing to them. So I went out to introduce and introduced myself. And so they were kind of curious when I began to explain about the church. And, you know, I walked them through... The, the section that was built in 1854 and the section that was uh, that was uh, uh, addition uh, well more of a basement that was built in the 1950s and the balcony and I took them out through the the section that was added on the 80s and then the section that was added on in the 90s and then the one we just built, the family center we just built uh, a few years back. but you know as I got done with that time and and I tried to point out the fact that God had been behind all this, I really wondered. Later on if really God was glorified by that. You know, if they're impressed with this building here or that addition there, that's that really isn't where it matters. These people in in, in Smyrna, they they were in great poverty. They were under great pressure, and yet Jesus is commending them. This is a church that was true to him. We're, we ought not to judge how good a, a, a church or how well, excuse me, a church is doing by their buildings or, or how big their offering is. That really isn't what God is looking at. Um, he's seeing a very impoverished and, and uh, persecuted people, and Jesus Christ is, is saying to them, look, I know your works. And when he said, I know your poverty, he, he then immediately adds this, but you are rich. These people were pleasing God, and although many others in their in their city of Smyrna were calling them fools, they were pleasing the Lord. They were doing what was right in Christ in Christ's eyes because they were following Him loyally in the face of great uh, of great suffering. A number of months ago, my wife and I watched a film on the internet called "Fool," and it's about an evangelist by the name of Ray Comfort and. Um, Ray has a number of things out uh, that he's done, and he's been quite a witness for the Lord and and tried to share the gospel with many people. But it's interesting that um, uh, he had a uh, a certain illustration that he used to give, where he would show a banana, and his statement was that this banana it was as a nightmare for an atheist evolutionist because it shows God's design. And so he would go through and show how the uh, the different things. And it was, it was meant to be funny, but it also was meant to, quite honestly, to mock those who don't believe in the Lord and to cause them to think about that. Well, what was interesting is um, he put that out on the internet and those of you some of you may already understand this that the banana that we're eating today is not something that grew naturally it actually instead of being an example of God's design it is an example of human engineering in the fact that that there was um, uh, it was the banana was developed by by uh, specific tactics so that we could not only eat it but enjoy it so the atheistic community got a hold of this and Ray Comfort became a laughing stock; uh, hence, the name of his movie *Fool*. Became a laughing stock among many atheists. As a matter of fact, they would uh, Richard Dawkins, this famous one of the most famous atheists in the world, would would at some of his seminars play Ray Comfort's um, uh, little monologue on the banana to show how foolish and how stupid uh, we as Christians are.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Boy, it was interesting, and it really greatly embarrassed uh, uh, uh,
0: Evangelist Comfort for many years. He, he really bothered him. As a matter of fact, he, made him say, he said that I hated to even eat a banana because it just made me so sick. I felt like I had failed the Lord. But as time went by, he also realized that... Uh, it caused much more interest, actually, in his presentations of the gospel, that even though many of those people were laughing at him, there would be some who would be thinking about the point that he was actually making. For instance, a banana may not be made by, by um, direct creation of God, but the human eye is. And when you think of the design of the eye which is far greater than the design of a banana. And to think that, to just imagine that coming to be by mere chance um, is is rather ridiculous. And sometimes God allows his people to go through humiliation in order that the gospel might be glorified. Because God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our reputation to be anything. What he wants to use is his word and the glory should go to his son. Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the fact that the church of Smyrna was suffering so greatly did not mean that uh, that Christ was, was angry with them at all. In fact, this is the one church that there is absolutely no doubt, he had no criticism of this church. They were suffering, they were loyal to him, and Jesus is saying, look, you're, you you are following the one true God. I, I am God in the flesh I am the first and the last and I have conquered death and guess what fellas that means you're going to conquer death too you be faithful to me and I am pleased with what you're doing So what did he see inside the church he saw their works he saw their tribulation the pressure they were under he saw their poverty but he also saw their true true riches but now what did he see outside the church? it's rather interesting um, uh, in the uh, in the in the future, Excuse me, let me start with the present. In the present, they were being blasphemed. He says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there was a, and by the way, this is obviously not true of many in the Jewish community, but in this particular spot, there was a group of people that were persecuting uh, the Christians in that community. And so they were being blasphemed, which means that that they were being slandered and lied about. um, Things were being said about them that were just wicked and wrong. And, um, and so uh, Jesus is, is, is dealing with them it, it's, and saying, look, I know what's going on here. I know what you're up against. I know that you're being blasphemed. Rather interesting, not in Smyrna, I believe, but in, I think, Rome. Archaeologists were digging in the remains of a school for imperial pages. These would be people that would work as pages, again, for the, uh, for the royal house in Rome. And they found a picture dating from the 3rd century. It may actually be the first um, depiction that we know of, as, even as though it's graffiti, of, of Christ being crucified. It's not a, a flattering or reverent picture. It shows a boy standing. And this is kind of, again, a graffiti drawn. It's like scraped into the rock. 3rd century. It shows a boy standing, his hand raised, worshiping the figure on a cross, a figure that looks like a man but has the head of an ass. Scrawled in writing uh, of a young person are the words, Alexa Menas worships his God. Now it's interesting, so this whoever drew that was mocking this Christian for worshiping Jesus and making Christ on the cross look like a, a, a human with a head of an ass. But it's also interesting that nearby this this drawing is a second inscription. And here's what that second inscription says. says. Alexa Menas is faithful. Apparently, a young man who was a Christian was being mocked by his schoolmates for his faithful witness as a Christian. But he was not ashamed. And I don't know if it was Alexa Menos himself or one of his friends that writes on, uh, writes uh, 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 just a little distance away from that mocking and blasphemous picture Alexa Menas is faithful oh here's a young man that is, is evidencing exactly what Jesus is saying to this church at Smyrna I see what's going on I see you're being blasphemed I see what's, what's happening you know he said something else what was going on he said you've been be, being blasphemed he said do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer so there's something coming in the future but we we know that that not only was were he was they being blasphemed, but there was a, a zealous anti Christian blasphemy um, and verbal slander that's happening, and th- that would result in physical violence of the against these people. It was not It was not going to be good in the future. And so when Jesus looks into the future for them, what does he see? He sees that some of them would be in prison. Listen to what he says. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. I'm praying for a couple pastors right now in China who are uh, in prison sentences basically for... Um, for their faith in Christ, for pastoring churches. And the Chinese have really begun to crack down over the last several years um, against them. Uh, One particular pastor was arrested, I believe it was 2014. And I don't think he is due to get out until somewhere around 2025. Another pastor was arrested, and I'm going off my memory now, but I've been praying for these men, 2018. And he may have a 10 to 12 year sentence as well that that, he is obviously still serving. Here are men that are losing years of their lives, years with their families. And why are they doing it? Because they are being loyal to Jesus Christ. Don't we all have to take our hats off to them? That's what these people of Smyrna, that's what Jesus is warning them about. Your future, you're going to be imprisoned. And you notice he says Satan's going to do it. And Satan is obviously behind this. So it's not an accident And it's interesting as well, we have to admit that God is allowing this. God is allowing his children's faith to be tested. And this is a theme that is common throughout uh, much of the New Testament. Let me just read you some verses that talk about how God allows his children to go through times of severe testing. First, uh, I'd like to read you James chapter 1. And verse 12. And James is writing this, by the way, to a group of of Christians who had been scattered to different countries because of their faith. And he writes this Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So he's saying, Blessed is the one who endures temptation, who endures uh, uh, trials, difficulties. Uh, another verse along the same line, First Peter chapter 5, actually several verses here. I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, and I'm going to read down to verse 9. Apostle Peter writes this, Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, you're rejoicing in their faith, though, for, uh, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of of your souls, Peter's saying, "Look, you're going through troubles. You're 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 suffering." I and 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 Peter himself was going to be uh, a martyr, and he's saying, "You know what? But the suffering that you're going through is a precious thing to the Lord. It is showing, uh, demonstrating that you are real, and you're not playing a game." Peter will go on. The same books uh, um, in 1 Peter chapter 4 now and verse 12. And listen to what he says again to Christians who are going to go through persecution. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in this manner. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous... One is scarcely saved. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So he, uh, the um, uh, Jesus is saying that these people are going to go through affliction. They're going to go through persecution. And yet their suffering would not be permanent. Because what he says is, Uh, Let me read to you again. It's in verse 10. He says, And you will have tribulation 10 days. So the idea there is an end. You know, sometimes we're in the, we're in the middle of the, of the tunnel, so to speak. We can't see the light at the end. And Jesus is saying there is a light at the end. Your suffering is not going to be permanent. He described their last their trial as lasting 10 days. Uh, John Walford, writing for the Bible Knowledge Commentary, listed several references that indicated that 10 days was often used to indicate a short length of time. And I won't go into those references for you, but, but it's interesting that, that Jesus is, is saying, look, this is not a permanent thing. He's not only saying, though, that some are going to be imprisoned. He's saying some of you are going to die. Listen to verse 10 again. He says, You'll have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some of them were going to die. They were going to die for their faith. About 50 to 60 years after the Apostle, Paul, excuse me, Apostle John, who's their author of the book of Revelation, about about uh, fifty sixty years after he pens this book, one of his personal disciples, a young man at when John was dealing with him, named Polycarp, uh, was now eighty six years old. Polycarp um, was was the bishop, the head pastor at the church in Smyrna, um, and others were in all probability martyred as well. Uh, for the same thing that Polycarp was eventually arrested and, and Polycarp burned at the stake because he would not offer a sacrifice to the Roman emperor. Now listen to Polycarp's words as recorded in, in some of the earliest Christian doc, uh, documents. And, and this is um, uh, what he said upon his, uh, to the crowd as he's about to be burned to death. He says, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while this clint is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so there Polycarp is witnessing to the crowd that will put him to death. And he gave his life for Jesus Christ, and his suffering was Uh, temporary and so jesus will counsel now his church and he says look you're going to suffer but don't be afraid he says fear not the things which you shall suffer so you need to see who christ is he's he, he is worth your love and loyalty and we need to see that he has conquered death and so we don't need to fear i know that there are many christians who are worried and concerned that that our uh, liberties are being taken away. And I will, I will freely acknowledge that there are uh, very troubling things that are happening. And uh, our government does seem to be becoming uh, much more hostile uh, toward Christians and toward um, what we believe. Uh, at the same time, we are, we are far better off than the vast majority of countries in the world. So we don't want to uh, be having a pity party on ourselves by any stretch We're not where these people at Smyrna were. Um, But what does Jesus tell this church? He says, okay, don't be afraid, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. You will be able to rejoice with me. I have in front of me a picture of um, some newspapers around the time of World War II. And in this particular um, picture, these, uh, these papers are... Are putting out virulent um, slanders against the Jewish community. And the problem when you begin to blaspheme a community like they did with the Jewish community in Nazi Germany is that there are people that believe those slanders and eventually many times those slanders uh, lead to violence. And of course that's exactly what happened in the days even before World War II. I have another picture in front of me, of a of a woman, and she was uh, in Pakistan, and uh, was in an office uh, working there. And uh, a man came up to her, and on three different occasions, he asked her, "Are you a Christian?" And she, each time, graciously said, "Yes, I am." Well, a man went out, and uh, this actually has happened to more than than just her. It it's actually has happened tragically to. Several Christians in, in that part of the world, but he went out and came in about maybe about a half an hour later or so, uh, and threw acid in her face, uh, causing uh, permanent scarring in both her face and on her neck. Um, again, this woman was uh, went through that simply because she acknowledged the fact that she was a Christian and was in no way ashamed of it. Now, is she suffering? For what she did? Absolutely. But that suffering is temporary. And I ask you, if you're listening, do you truly know Jesus as your Savior? If you do, don't be ashamed of Him. Because, whatever, um, and again, compared to what other countries are facing, it's minor with us, whatever um, opposition you may face, it's, it's worth it because you're going to be with the Lord forever. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you don't have that hope. You really don't. And so when Christ counsels the church, he says, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Remember who I am. Remember my victory over death. And be faithful unto death. Be, be faithful. In verse 11, he challenges us all with this. He says, and He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, he says, what he's saying is make this personal. Okay, you may not be going through the persecution that the church of Smyrna is going through, and, and we may never face that kind of opposition where it seems like almost everyone in your community hates you. But he's saying, look, be faithful to. Like these people are faithful. Don't be ashamed of me, especially when, when we're up against so much less than these people are up against. So not only make this personal, but remember the blessing that you get when you suffer for the Lord, when, when you are faithful to the Lord uh, no matter what. Now what does he mean though when he says at the end of verse 11, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Well, there's actually a, a passage that we can read that will explain that to us. And I'm going farther back now into the book of Revelation. And I'm coming to Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to read to you verse 11 down to verse 15. And here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Let me try of bring you up to date on, what's, on the context here. What's happened is that um, basically human history has come to its conclusion on earth, and God has has brought Christ's kingdom to earth. And the wicked now have been judged, and this great white throne is the judgment throne of God. And some of you may have heard uh, references to the great white throne, and this is where it comes from. This is where the lost of all the world, those who did not accept Christ as personal Lord and Savior, this is where the lost of all the world will be judged by God. So let's see what happens. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. Now the books, what's that about? Well, those would be the records of our lives. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in, their, in the books. So does it matter how I live on this earth? Absolutely it matters. But when you're lost without Christ, what this is all about is you're being judged and basically your punishment, because all these people are lost, all these people are headed toward eternal hell, and basically the degree of your suffering is what's being assessed here by your works. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. So scattering your ashes or thinking that somehow uh, God's not going to be able to reconstitute your body is foolishness. The sea gives up the dead which were in it. It says, um, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were, which were in them. Hades is the place where the spirits go after they leave this life. And they, who were, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the second death refers to God's eternal punishment in the lake of fire or what we commonly call hell. Now, let me show you a second reference to the second death. It's found in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. It's the next chapter over. And what's interesting about this is that you actually get a list of people who are going to be part of the second death. So let me read it to you. It's Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, that's quite a list, and so I think we need to consider those uh, just briefly, one by one. The first one is cowardly. So if I'm a person that um, maybe is afraid to, to, to be a Christian because I don't want to suffer for Christ, so I don't want any opposition, I don't want anybody to mad at me, I don't want anybody to say that I'm foolish, if i'm cowardly i'm I'm not going to come to christ that person's in hell the unbelieving the unbelieving is someone who doesn't believe what god has said doesn't take his word seriously doesn't believe what he says about heaven and hell doesn't believe that jesus christ is the savior that he's a sinner in need of uh, of salvation if i'm telling god no i don't believe that that's unbelieving the next one he says abominable now this could obviously encompass a whole host of sins that God would say are an abomination. I'll tell you this, pride is an abomination to God. We just go on. Murderers, obviously, we would know that a person who murders should be in hell. Sexually immoral. Now you think, uh, boy, how many have have violated that principle? And I would remind you that Jesus compared um, looking at a woman with lust to adultery sexually immoral then he mentions sorcerers now the word sorcerer is rather interesting It's the word pharmakia from where we get pharmacy so drug abuse is also under the idea of sorcery and sorcerers would also be involved people who are involved with the occult whether it be a ouija board a fortune teller any of those type of things he says the next one uh, next group are, are idolaters now, a person who's an idolater, when we think of somebody who worships a false god, and that's true. But idolatry also involves putting anything ahead of God. So, if I put my kids ahead of the Lord, if I put my wife ahead of the Lord, if I put my put my uh, own desires, my own uh, desires ahead of the Lord, I become an idolater. And then he mentions all liars. Now, when you think of a liar, I want you to also understand a murderer. Okay, how many times do you have to murder to be a murderer? Well, you have to be, you have to do it once. How many times do I need to lie to be a liar? I would only need to do it once. And so he says, all of these people, the the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, if you're a thinking person, you're probably saying something like this to me, Pastor Lane, I don't, I, I, I obviously fit that list. And I don't know a single human that doesn't fit that list. And you would be correct. Other than Jesus Christ himself, every one of us fits that list in some way. We have done something abominable for God. We've been cowardly. We haven't believed the Lord, what he said. We've said, well, I don't think that's true. We, we have been immoral or, or possibly a drug abuser or possibly involved with the occult or we, or we certainly have put something ahead of God whether I want to go to the ball game and I'll I'll skip out on worshiping the Lord, or I put my my own desire for entertainment ahead of uh, of putting uh, God in His rightful place, maybe I. If you've told a lie, so you say. Well, if if all of us are going to hell, how's that going to work? Well, that's exactly why Jesus had to come to the had to had to come to this earth, become a man, and die on the cross, and His death was for your sins and for mine and it is not enough that some of your sins be washed away you have to have all of them washed away just like i did and the good news is that when jesus died on the cross he died for all your sins and as it says god demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. So Jesus died to take away every one of your sins. But, my friend, if you are trying to earn your way into heaven, thinking that somehow you can go around Christ and you can make it on your own merits, you are you are a fool. You're never going to do it. You must be have your sins washed away through the blood of Christ. And so Christ challenges, make it personal. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches: Remember, there is a blessing for suffering for Christ. Now, let me just quickly give you some conclusions. Uh, n- number one, Jesus is worth your loyalty. These people lived it; they 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 died for loyalty to Christ. Number two, death for the Christian is a promotion. It's it's we're, we're going to a better place. Number three, suffering is often a test of your faith. Don't think that suffering always has to be eliminated, Christian. God allows it and and even um, orchestrates sometimes uh, the suffering in order that you might have your faith tested and you might show your, your true loyalty to him. Number four, Christ approves of those who remain loyal during hardship. Number five, great suffering does not indicate God's judgment every time. Don't always assume that. That great suffering indicates that God is somehow angry with you. Number six, sometimes great suffering indicates God's unique blessing. This was the church, the persecuted church, that God was saying, you're rich. Number seven, all suffering for the true Christian is only temporary. And the bottom line is simply this, Jesus exalts those who are humiliated for him. You're willing to be humiliated for him? You're willing to stand for him? Jesus says, blessed are those are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So remember Christ, remember his resurrection, stay loyal to him and do not be afraid. I have one more picture in front of me. It's of Victoria Brezhneva, uh, the wife of Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet dictator back from, I think he was um, in the 50s up through about 1982. And Brezhnev's wife um, uh, was, was, like her husband, seemed to be a materialist, atheist. But, but um, it's rather interesting that several sources would, will say that when Brezhnev dies in 1982, when they have his funeral in state, um, and again, the Soviet Union absolutely committed to atheism, that uh, his wife, Victoria, is standing at her husband's uh, coffin, and they're about to put the, the cover on the coffin. And at the last moment, she reached forward, I think she gave him a kiss, and made the sign of the cross on him right before, and, and, and this, by the way, was an act of, of great uh, danger in that context. Why? You know, when an atheist even comes to the point of death, There's something there. They know that that really isn't the end. Oh, prepare to meet the Lord. Prepare to know him as Lord and Savior. If we can help you, don't hesitate to
1: contact us. Lord bless you. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at caulkinsbaptistchurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Let me invite you, if you don't currently attend a Bible-preaching church, to consider visiting us at Calkins. Our Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. with classes for all ages. Our morning worship service begins at 10 a.m., and our Sunday evening Bible study starts at 6.30. We provide a nursery for each of these services. For those of you who enjoy athletics and Good Christian Fellowship, we have an adult volleyball and Bible study group that meets on Monday evening starting at 6.30 p.m. in our Beacon Family Center. Also, just last Wednesday, we resumed our children's ministry called Kids for Truth, our teen group, and our adult Bible study and prayer meeting. All three groups start at 6.30 on Wednesday evening. The adults finish by 7.30 p.m. and the children and teen groups end at 8 o'clock. Feel free to contact us for more information on any of these ministries. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. For he life and light he
0: frees.